0: Welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith Podcast. As always, I'm Josh Patterson, and with me today is my co-host, Marty Frederick. Marty, what's going on, man?
1: Hello. Welcome back to me, I guess. It's been a couple weeks since I've been able to join you, so I'm yeah. glad I'm glad to be back.
0: Yeah, it's nice to have you back. You know, it's good to, to not have to try to carry on conversation by myself, because I think listeners were getting super annoyed, like, we want Marty, we want Marty. There's like a <laughs> protest on my house. And it got real oh, Wow, ugly. Yeah, it got real Well, ugly. the
1: reality is, is, is because you're the smart one. And I just kind of, <laughs> I'm sort of like the color commentator. You know, like when you watch a, like a football or a basketball game and the person's like, wow, that was a great shot. Like, that's me. It doesn't take much like wisdom to be able to do that. But you're the one that's like usually like the smart one that's got it all together. And I just am kind of part of the conversation beyond that. I don't know. I'm going to see if I can prove that wrong, though, today. I'm going to try my hardest.
0: I think you can, because I was going to (laughs) just, for, you know, complete transparency, I'm pretty much a faker. You know, I'm not, I'm not really smart. I'm a, I'm a faker. I fake it until I make it. You know, I just, what I do is I memorize quotes from books, and then whenever it seems like that quote fits a conversation, I say it, and then people assume (laughs) I'm smart. Yeah. I never credit the author ever. So, (laughs) that,
2: You're a walking act of plagiarism right there. Uh, exactly. <laughs> plagiarism <laughs> exactly.
0: incarnate. <laughs> exactly. And for our listeners who don't recognize that voice, that is our guest today, Greg Boyd or Dr. Greg Boyd. What would you like to go by today?
2: Greg is fine. Greg
0: is fine. All right. So Greg is with us today. Greg, how are you doing?
2: Well, I just quote. I just give quotes whenever I think they're appropriate. So I find point <laughs> infinite points is 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 essentially meaningless. jean Paul Sartre. I'm <laughs> just shoot up random quotes this whole uh, just so I can be like you. I'm doing great. You're, you're doing, doing great.
0: awesome. Yeah, you're doing awesome. I'm still
2: so alive. The, the coronavirus hasn't killed me yet.
0: That's a plus. Yes. that's a plus.
2: Plus either. I've <laughs> noticed. I know you guys are still living, yeah. so that, that's yeah.
1: good. Don't even. know. there's nap- eleven. There's eleven people that live in my house. My my uh, five people in my family plus my parents' family. Uh, and so you know, you think people, kids going to school and coming home, and people going to work and coming back. You'd you'd think for sure we would have got it by now, but it, something's uh, different about us. I it's guess, come.
2: I'm it's sure. nowhere in Minnesota. Yeah, uh, I guess. Minnesota, where are you guys? located? I'm in the
1: Chicago suburbs.
2: Has it hit there yet? Do you guys any recorded examples? Yes.
1: Yes, there's been a few people that ever have have contracted it, but then they've been they've been released like, with well, with a full recovery. So.
2: Shelly and I were down in Sarasota, Florida last week, and boom, two days ago it turns out we had two cases down there. So so we I could be infected right now. I think we, <laughs> we, but it is weird though. I went to, went to the uh, store this morning to try to get some extra wipes and some sanitizers, and, and we couldn't find anything. No toilet no. paper, no sanitizer, no mask, no anything. It's like wow, it, it just got sucked up so i've seen people out since y2k it's kind of interesting
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah people are going nuts here too like so i'm in montgomery county uh greg which is like a suburb of dc area okay and uh one of our pastors on staff went out today to try to get stuff um for uh those on our serving team this weekend and she just like wasn't able to get anything
1: because people are yeah.
0: mobbing the stores. It's crazy. I know, It's, just boom. it's uh, like a hurricane
1: that rush. It's like, it's like a hurricane is coming. Right, Josh? Yeah, you it's... and I know about that. Oh, goodness gracious. Yeah.
0: That's a story <laughs> for another day, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sweet. All right. Well, Greg, before we jump in, we do we have a question that we ask everyone who comes on to our show. And right. the the thing about it, though, is it depending on how Marty is feeling, he could shut down the interview based off your response. So it's okay. really just trying to please Marty. Okay,
2: it's always about Marty. I got that.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. do you want to ask him the question then, Marty? Since you're sure, the one who gets sure. mad.
1: Yeah. So, so Greg, who is your favorite NHL hockey team?
2: <laughs> My favorite NHL hockey team. Yeah. The uh, Minnesota Wild. All right. We have a solid <laughs> that's answer. That's kind
1: of what I thought you would say. <laughs> well,
2: that's like what I know. <laughs> you know, so any, funny. But I know we have a hockey team
1: interesting story is i've actually played um and directed a pep band from when i was in college in the minnesota wilds stadium because wow. i went to nmu in marquette michigan which is not very far from there and our hockey team when i was in college went there for like a regional playoff or something like that wow. and uh so i got to hang out it's it's a cool stadium it's it's small it's not very big so
2: yeah well it fits the hockey team and a few onlookers and that's all it takes yeah uh, yeah <laughs> the XL center yep um I, I, mean, I have no idea. Are, are they good? Or are they bad? Are they winning? Are they, I have yeah, no Yeah, they're
0: pretty, they're pretty good this year. They are. Right. But also, Greg, you should be happy that you are able to name one because we had a buddy of yours uh, on the show before, Bruxy. And when we asked yeah. Bruxy his favorite team, he was like, I'm a bad Canadian. I don't watch hockey. And so we had to help him name a team. So you did better than Bruxy. So next time you see him, <laughs> you can tell him that.
2: Yay! I beat up Bruxy, which is so much <laughs> sports stuff. It's like... Uh, it's like beating him in a race. You can't really brag about it. (laughs) 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 Sorry, Bruxy. I love you.
0: (laughs) Sweet. Awesome. Well, so Greg, can you give us just a little bit of, uh, like your background, uh, kind of stuff. So people know who you are, like who you are, what you do, uh, maybe a little bit about your, your upbringing, those kind of things. Oh, who is Greg
2: Boyd? Let me see. Uh, okay, the, the, the highlights would be I was born at a very young age, uh, I moved around a lot, was a kid. Ended up here in Minnesota from about the age of uh, eight on, uh, So I was considered St. Paul, Minnesota to be home. Um, went out, I got, became a Christian at the age of uh, 16, uh, after four years of drug sex and rock and roll, living pretty much on my own, because my parents divorced. and. Uh, but I uh, found God 17, lost my faith by 18, got it back by the time I was 20 or so, uh, and kind of been uh, working through problems ever since. Uh, so I've been a professor at Bethel University, and I'm now uh, adjunct at uh, Northern Seminary, uh, and I pastor a church, Woodland Hills Church. Uh, we've been going for 26 years, or 27 years and I, I'm uh, the founder of a, a ministry called Renew Ministries, mm-hmm. with a K, much like yourself, rethink everything you thought you knew, rethink the faith, it's all about that, mm-hmm. uh, with a K, uh, R-E-K-N-E-W. And I like to read and write books, that's my favorite thing, and I like to preach and mm-hmm. a, on top of that. And so that's kind of my whole life right there. I'm, I'm married, I've been married for 40 years, got three gr- grown kids and six grandkids, and they all mm-hmm. live around me, so I consider myself a very blessed man.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. Well, I'm gonna—I'll break my uh, professionalism here for a little bit, Greg. Just like, to be completely upfront, like Just we're so
2: formal and professional. Absolutely, yeah. right.
0: <laughs> but I—I was—I uh, was telling Marty before before he came on how excited I was uh, for this conversation uh, because your work has been so helpful and influential uh, for me. Um, in helping, you know, me to, to rethink my faith, but also in helping me stay within the faith. <laughs> uh, good, so good. Um, I really appreciate that, and uh, excited to have the opportunity to have well, you I, on I, today. I,
2: you know, and thanks for saying that. That is, um, I am finding out, um, I, I, that is one of the ways I think God has used me, and it's because uh, so much of my own thought is is focused on staying within the faith. I mean, so there's <laughs> things that, I, all these... Things that it seems like most Christians are able to just sort of accept or something, but for whatever reasons, I uh, to me there's so many deal breakers. Like it, it, you've got to explain. It's it's you have to make this somewhat intelligible, or I just can't. My heart can never get behind something my brain can't fully embrace. Mm-hmm. And I can accept mystery if a mystery is legitimate, like time and space. You can't you can't think of it uh, being finite or infinite. Either way, it creates. Uh, what, what, what it's, it's what Kant called an antinomy. It creates a contradiction. You can't think of time beginning you can't think of it not beginning so either way you've got a conundrum I accept those kind of paradoxes but so much of what is called mystery and paradox and whatever in in Christian theology is I think just it's just muddled thinking (laughs) that we just plaster the name mystery on and 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 so it's got to make you know some kind of compelling sense to, to to believe it and so I think my own wrestling with that now it becomes helpful for other people who are wrestling with this And a lot of us today, I think most Christians, certainly all thoughtful Christians, are thinking, are wrestling with a lot of tough issues today. There's a lot of tough stuff that we're dealing with. And uh, so if I can be used to help people stay within the parameters of something like Orthodox Christianity, uh, I, I feel like I've done my job. I have a purpose. So thank you very much for giving my life meaning. (laughs)
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah well and, and as as I read the book that we that were we that were discussing today inspired in perfection, it, it was something to me that so I grew up in a very you're a very standard uh evangelical free missionary evangelical style church. Um, The thought progressive had absolutely nothing to do with any part of my faith journey in any stretch. I mean, like to think outside the box or to rethink your faith was like, well, but why? Because everything's already answered for me. Uh, And it was as Josh and I were texting and talking about this book. I I even told him, you know, a lot of the things that I'm reading through the book and your point you're bringing up is, you know, as, as we'll get into, I'm sure, you know, well, this problem really stuck out to me and I just couldn't work my way past that. A lot of those things I was like, yeah, okay. Okay, whatever it's a problem right, big deal right, right. <laughs> um but what i think as i was reading through the book i was telling josh for what for me so well was not only were you coming up with this new idea, not not a new idea but but something different a different angle than sure. i had seen before but also you were not only quoting but talking about how you adhere to so many of these really just standard apologetic thinkers like c.s lewis people that like you know if you asked your your typical evangelical they would be like oh cs lewis is great and and so that 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 so much about what you wrote about on this book just it 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 spoke to me per, on a personal level but then also it spoke to me on just like a okay like how can i continue to rethink my faith because as josh and i have shared over the last couple months this idea of progressivism within faith is kind of new for me but it's becoming a lot more of my story over the last sure. few months.
2: See, and so. then, the thing is, Marty, is that that, and I'm really glad that you're, you know, you open-minded, so you're thinking, and you're progressing, and progressive just means that you're, you think that there's a future uh, to the Christian faith, that that it progresses, that there's new challenges to face. You can't just keep on repeating the old stuff because right. what was what applied 20 years ago doesn't necessarily apply today. So it, you got to keep right. on thinking. The, the danger is, however, this is that. Since most evangelicals are given sort of a um, house of cards model of faith, where everything kind of hangs together, here's the, here's the the collection of all the things you must believe in order to be a Christian and be saved. You must yeah. believe God is triune, you must live in the incarnation, heaven, hell, blah, 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 blah. Um, and, and in in that model, if, if one thing is proven wrong, it's an all or nothing kind of thing. This is the house of cards. You knock out one card, the whole thing comes tumbling down. So Christians see themselves as the people who believe all... They, the, 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 we have the container of all true beliefs and we embrace this. Well, then when you come to start to question that and, and the belief and in maybe inerrancy falls or the belief, you know, that, that uh, you have a different understanding of, 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 of the second coming or whatever, well, then what, your, your whole faith is vulnerable. People lose their whole faith. In fact, when I went to the university of Minnesota, I had been a Christian for about a year. It was wonderful. I was based it all on my experience with God, which is very powerful. But I take a class at the U of M on on evolution. While I'm also taking a class on the Bible as literature. And it took less than one one semester for my whole faith to get blown apart. Because I was told that the whole Bible is either inerrant. You know, if Adam and Eve aren't literal people, then the whole Bible might as well be a book of lies. That's what my pastor said. Well, it took less than a semester to come to the conclusion that uh, there's something to evolutionary theory, and there's some contradictions in the Bible. Sorry, and Moses did not write the five books, first five books of the Bible, and all you know some of the, some of the stories don't comport with what we know about actual history, and so on, and and and, uh, and, and so I, I completely lost my faith, and so it was a matter of then slowly crawling back into the faith, and 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 C.S. Lewis was very helpful in that re- in, in that regard, uh, that 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 kept me in the ball game, and why I want to now help others stay in the ball game most yeah. of the reasons why people end up leaving the faith are totally, totally unnecessary. Mm. I think yeah. it's totally unnecessary. It's tragic.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I love too how like you kind of prefaced and your book and like used that as like a thread that you kind of weave through like your story wrestling through these kind of things. And so I guess you just touched on it. But the, the question we were going to ask you is why did you write this book? And I think you just answered it very well. You, you know, saw people – uh, stepping away or walking away from the faith for reasons that were maybe um, very real to them or silly, yeah. And, and, and see what happens is we're
2: like I—I I was given this this faith that the Bible is utterly without errors. It's got to be a perfect book because a perfect God, God's perfect. So if God breathes a book, the, the book must be perfect. And and my whole faith was based on that. Well, the thing is, is that that's a very vulnerable position to have and i see young people especially leaving going out to college or or maybe they just meet a smart friend or read a book and <laughs> boom they, they, they lose their whole faith and uh it, it's i think just it, it, it inerrancy is i think a very dangerous doctrine to hold today because it's so easy to disprove and if that's the foundation of your faith you have a very very vulnerable faith
0: <laughs> sure. Can you so for our listeners who might not uh, know what what you mean when you're talking about inerrancy? Can you just explain that a little bit? Sure.
2: So, so uh, yeah. So my, the book is called "Inspired Imperfection: um, How the quote unquote problems of the Bible enhance its divine authority." Um, and and so I'm going. I, I'm critiquing this belief that the Bible. Uh, if it's the word of god has to be completely without any errors. It's inerrant. That's the phrase that's used. And that has been since the seventies sort of the uh battle cry of evangelicals. Uh at least a lot of the evangelicals is you know the inerrancy of the Bible. Now you now have some progressive evangelicals who are saying, nah, I got you know, I'll hold that it's infallible, maybe it's it won't let you down, but it's not inerrant. So you've got a spectrum there. So the first part of the book I lay out kind of all the different options, evangelical options, that I burned through in the process of trying to figure this out. You know, you have limited inerrancy, you know, infallibility, and all all these kind of different ways of qualifying it. And I plowed through all of them, showing why I don't think some of them work, and then finally coming up with a model of inspiration that I think, I I want to affirm that the Bible is absolutely fully inspired. It's it's the traditional doctrine of what's called the plenary inspiration of the Bible, the full inspiration, and the Church has always affirmed that. and I think that it's a dangerous thing to to back off of that belief. Uh, historically, when, when groups have cut the tether with biblical authority, they, fly out, they just float out in outer space. Um, but <laughs> I also want to show that to affirm the full inspiration of the Bible, you don't have to affirm the inerrancy of the Bible. Uh, and those are two very different things. And I use the cross as my paradigm for kind of understanding all this. Uh, the cross. Cross is the full revelation of who God is, and yet the cross embodies all that's wrong and broken and sinful with the world. And so, obviously, it's no problem for God to reveal Himself through things that are broken and finite and and limited and sinful. The cross <laughs> is the quintessential expression of that. So, if God does it on the cross, why can't God do that throughout the whole Bible? In fact, I think we would expect that that's how God would reveal Himself through the Bible.
0: Yes. Yeah, yeah, and I think too – so what I really liked about this and what I was so excited was – so I've read um, like Crucifixion of the Warrior God and Cross Vision uh, where you kind of talk about this like cruciform uh, hermeneutic or or reading of scripture. And then what I thought was so cool about this is that you then took that hermeneutic and you applied it to the inspiration of scripture itself. Right, right. That's fair. Yeah, fair. That's um, a very
2: good description, yeah. So instead of, uh, in in Crucifixion of the Warrior God and in Cross Vision, uh, the second, Cross Vision being the popular version of Crucifixion of the Warrior God, but uh, there I use a cruciform hermeneutic, a cross-centered way of approaching the Bible to to explain the problem posed by violent portraits of God in the Old Testament that conflict with what we learned about God and Jesus. So in this book, I apply it to, that problem, but to all the problems of the Bible as well. And so you have you have uh, stories that most scholars agree are not rooted in history, even though they're presented as history. You've got contradictions uh, that are very difficult to explain away. You've got ordinary human mistakes that go on there. Uh, you know, Mark Mark 1, Jesus says that David ate showbread while Abiathar was high priest, when actually it was his father in Bimlic who was high priest, and, and little things like that. Um, and 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 uh, those sorts of things, and then just basically some immoral immoral stories and things like that. Those are all problems. Things that embarrass Christians. Things that you know people think, well, if this is God's word; it shouldn't be there. You know, and some of the stories in the Bible, you know, are are, are wow. You think is this is this really divinely inspired? The story of that guy getting hacked up into twelve pieces, being sent to the twelve tribes of Israel. <laughs> Judges nineteen. There's a edifying children's story and. I mean, you know, all those things. Um, and so this is a way of saying, my, my whole point here, and it's not original with me, it actually comes out of origin more than anyone else, origin being a second century theologian. But he says the whole Bible's inspired, and that includes all of its mistakes, all of its errors, all of its problematic depictions of God. He was honest about that. He goes, these pictures can't be literally true of God. If, if, if some of these portraits in the Old Testament, if they're literally true of God, then God would be a... Worse deity than pagan deities, that <laughs> they origin mm. said that, uh, and he says if Christians take this violence literally, well they'll start acting violently, which a lot of scholars today are saying. He was kind of a prophet in that respect that when we worship a god who's violent, we are inclined to act violently. So he 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 said these things, uh, you can't take them on uh, literally on the surface, but it's all inspired, and so he held that when when we find contradictions and uh, inaccuracies and things in the Bible, that we 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 shouldn't ever you know dismiss it, it's all God's Word, but but instead rely on the Spirit, he says, and keep digging because you'll find a deeper truth. That these things that seem like they're unworthy of God will become worthy of God once you see the full picture, once you discover the, tre- the treasure hidden beneath the surface, which is a common analogy that, that he uses. So the whole Bible, just mm-hmm. as it is, mistakes, warts and all, is the perfect revelation of God. And, and so we're really doing the Bible a disservice when we think we've got to tidy it up and clean up all the stories and 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 explain all the contradictions and all that. We're trying to make a, 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 a have a sanitized version of the Bible, but that's like trying to have a sanitized version of the cross.
0: <laughs> you know, if,
2: if you take away the sin of the cross, you know, and Jesus embodies all that's wrong and the judgment that it that it brings about, well, then you don't have a revelation of God because the revelation is about how God stoops to enter into our human our human situation, our finitude, and our sin. And that reveals the perfect love that he is. Well, if God does that on the cross, then and the cross is the center of what the whole Bible is about, I make that case in, in this book as well, then why would we think that the Bible would be altogether free of all the stuff that the cross is full of? Yeah. And this idea that a perfect God must reveal himself through a perfect book, well, Jesus on the cross is the epitome of sin. <laughs> and God reveals himself through that. So this idea that God has to reveal himself through what's perfect uh, is, is just misguided. Uh, God, you know, Paul says that God always uses the weak and the fallible things of this world to confound the wise uh, and, and, and the strong. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, given that that's the kind of God where we see a foolish and weak-looking God revealed in the cross, how would we think that the Bible that points to the cross would not be itself foolish and weak-looking? Mm-hmm. Uh, the humility of the cross it should set us up to believe in the humility of the Bible. And now you can see how, in the same way that the the sin that Jesus bears points to the love of God because it reveals a God who is willing to stoop to bear our sin, so also every imperfection in the Bible, all the mistakes, all the humanness, it just bears witness to a God who is so great that he'll use fully silly, stupid, sinful humans like us to accomplish his purposes. And he's always done that. Uh, and the Bible is the greatest testament to that. Look how foolish and weak it is by normal human standards. And yet, God uses it to do his will.
0: <laughs> yeah, so it... Would it... Like, trying to to s- summarize the, the idea of the cross in, like, a, a few short sentences, would it be fair to say that on the cross, the cross, as in uh, the acts perpetrated against Christ, uh, against Jesus, reveals the ugliness of human sin, but in turn, it also reveals the beauty exactly. of God because God is stooping and allowing the sin per- of, of man to enact on himself. Is that You fair? must
2: read the book. <laughs> Cedar. Hey, you know, so, so th- 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 that's exactly it. So look at when, uh, part of the mistake is that, that, that Paul uses this term, uh, the, all scripture is God breathed. Theonoustos in Greek. Second uh, Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God breathed. Um, and that's the literal translation. Uh, theos means God, and neustos is the word for breath. So it's, theos is God breathed. Um, and people assume that, that therefore, God must exhale scripture. Like, he just whoosh, comes right out of his mouth. And so if God just exhaled scripture, and God's perfect, well, then you would expect scripture to be perfect. But you'd also expect scripture to have a God style throughout. Like, it'd, be, it'd have God's Writing style, right? But it doesn't. It has all the writing styles of the authors, and you think it would all reflect God's perspective, but it doesn't. It reflects the perspective of the authors, and you think it all reflects God's perfection, but it doesn't. It reflects the imperfections and the and the failings and the shortcomings of the authors. So God's breathing apparently isn't unilateral activity. Now people just assume that, even though they themselves know it's not. Because look at all the variations we have between the biblical writings. You know, Paul's pretty good in Greek, but Mark is pretty lousy, and yet I think God knows perfect Greek but he uses them in in their linguistic capacities not in god's linguistic capacities so the thing is is if you if you start instead of assuming you know what god's breathing is it's assuming's always a bad thing in theology it's what's obvious that does us in it's what we think is obvious it's obvious that a perfect god must breathe a perfect book but if we instead look at the cross and let it teach us what god's breathing looks like on the cross, yes, God. God's breathing involves God acting toward us. He breathes out towards us. God's the one who took the initiative to become a human being and and and, and do, do all the teachings and put himself in a position where he'd get arrested and crucified and all that. But God's breathing also involved God allowing people to act on him and the way people act on God. So God acts towards people, but God also allows people to act toward him and 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 that conditions what gets what results from God's breathing. So God breathes the cross, the revelation of God on the cross, and it's held up in the New Testament as the definitive revelation of God. But that breathing involved God acting toward us. Yes, God became a human being, and that's God there hanging on the cross. But it also involved God allowing people to act toward Him and all the ugliness on the cross. all the violence done to Jesus was done by people, all the mocking, the spitting, all that, that was done by people under the influence of powers. But God was allowing that to act on him and condition what results from his breathing. Hmm. So the cross is, on the one hand, profoundly beautiful. It's unsurpassably beautiful because it reveals an unsurpassably beautiful God who would stoop an infinite distance to enter into solidarity with us in our humanity and our sin. But it's also profoundly ugly because, as you pointed out, it reveals, it, it, it's like a mirror that, that, that reveals back to us the horror of our sin and judgment. And so we see uh, the worst of ourselves on the cross, but we also see the best of ourselves on the cross because while we were sinners, Christ loved us. And we see here the truth about who God is, a God who would stoop to this distance. Well, if that's how God breathed the revelation on the cross... And if God breathed all of Scripture for the purpose of pointing us to the revelation of God on the cross, which is a case I make in the in the book, well, then shouldn't we expect that the, the breathing of God in Scripture to be like the breathing of God on the cross, which is relational, dialogical? It's not a unilateral thing. It's not a coercive thing. God's not blowing us over with his breathing. Rather, God invites us into a dialogue with his breathing. And, and what we see in Scripture is both God acting toward people but also God then accepting them as they are in the midst of their finitude and their faults and their sin and breathing through them just as they are. See, so he is a perfect people before he breathes through them. And that's that's one of the ways that everything points to, towards the cross. I'll give you one example and shut up. Uh, so like Paul, in, in, in 1 Corinthians 1, I love this example, where Paul is, he, he's making the case. The Corinthians are divided based on who baptized them, right? So they're like, I was baptized by Cephas. I was baptized by Apollos or whatever. And so Paul is saying, knock it off, you guys, you're, you're being divided. And then he says, I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you. because So you can't say you're baptized after, you know, in my name. I, he's saying, I thank God I didn't contribute to this division. But then as he's saying it, he stops himself and he goes, I did also baptize the household of Stephanus. Because uh, he said, I didn't baptize anybody. Oh, except I did baptize the household of Stephanus. And then also of, of uh, one other person, Cephas. But then he says, actually... And then he crushed himself again. Actually, I don't know who i baptized and didn't. But my point, he says, so here, that does the the doctrine of inerrancy. And here's an error. Paul mistakenly (laughs) thought he didn't baptize anybody. Then he mistakenly thought he only baptized the household of Stephanus. Then he finally realized he doesn't have a clue as to who he baptized and didn't baptize. So he admits that. (laughs) But then he goes on to say, so there's an error. But then he goes on to say, but, you know, it doesn't matter because God sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with eloquent words of of wisdom, lest the cross be robbed of its power. And so here Paul is is saying, yeah, you know what? I'm fallible. I'm fallible. I make mistakes. My memory's not perfect. But it's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. Because that's how we glorify the the cross. When we are weak, then he is strong. When we're imperfect, he shows forth his his perfection. Um, and, and, And Paul does this at several points. It's when we're weak that he is strong. That's the power of the cross. It's the power of weakness. It's the power of God, and it's the, it, Paul says that the cross is the power of God, right? And the wisdom of God, First Corinthians one twenty four, and that's the power we see displayed in the Bible. Uh, and and it, when you look at it from that lens, then all of the Bible is perfect, just as it is, mistakes and all. It's inspired imperfection. In it's perfectly imperfect. It bears. <laughs> it does exactly what God wants it to do. So I'm willing to say it's infallible. It, 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 it's infallible. It won't let you down if you trust it for the right purpose. It will never let you down. Inerrant, by science standards, by historical standards, by grammatical standards, by whatever standards you want? Nope. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not that. But it's better because of that.
1: Yeah. I guess I just don't understand why Paul just didn't hit backspace and then say, <laughs> I can't remember who I baptized. <laughs> you
2: know, I, I think his electricity <laughs> went down so his autocorrect wasn't working or something. Yeah.
1: <laughs> his internet must have been down. Uh, a bit. That, that's
0: probably it. probably it. It's it.
2: <laughs> probably <laughs> it. Yeah.
0: So well, it... It seems like to me, because, I mean, I know enough um, of your, your background, Greg, so this might be uh, setting you up for a softball pitch, but it seems like uh, the um, a, a big heart behind this is uh, wanting to genuinely place Christ, Jesus, at the center of everything. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of who God is. And then it mm-hmm. seems like you then take that idea and kind of push it a step further, maybe uh, put some teeth to it. Because I think sometimes people just say, oh, we're Jesus-centric, but then it doesn't yeah, really yeah. mean anything. <laughs> it hey, seems right, like right. you're you're taking that, but then actually pushing it and saying, okay, if we're going to say that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God, what does that mean? And it seems like yeah. you kind of
2: and, it. and more specifically, I make the case that if Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. Um, everything points towards him. He says that all scriptures about me, John 5, but more specifically, in, in Luke 24, he says that all, all Scripture is about me, and more specifically about, how, about my sufferings, about the cross. And, and Paul says that, that, that Jesus was crucified according to Scripture, 1 Corinthians 15, 3. And as N.T. Wright shows, he's not saying that there's one or two Scriptures that predict this. He's saying the whole thrust of Scripture points towards this. If you're reading it in the right lens, which is you know through the lens of the cross, so yes, Jesus is the center of Scripture, but the cross is the center of everything Jesus was about.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and and that's not to say that the cross, like his death, separate from his life and his teachings and and his deeds, but rather the cross is is sums up his teachings and his life and his deeds. It's the through line that weaves it all together, and and um, and so. It, I, the thing is, is that it's easy to say that, like, oh, yes, and there are folks who say, like, oh, we have to read the Bible Christocentrically, or even cross-centeredly, but it doesn't, But if you read their books, I, I've read so many books that claim to be Christocentric, and I put them down and I ask the question, what was Christocentric about that? If that book wasn't Christocentric, how would it be different? Like, what, when does this cross criteria take on teeth? When does it actually make a difference? Luther is the greatest theologian in history on the cross. He's called the theologian of the cross. He said, no other God have I but thee, born in a major, died on a tree. He says, I find nothing in Scripture other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. Okay, so he says all that. But if you read his actual commentaries, it's like he interprets the violent portraits of God the same way he interpreted if he didn't believe in the cross. I mean, at least he, there's no place where I can say, ah, here the cross really makes a difference. Um, so yeah, I'm trying to live this all consistently and saying, what happens if we make him in the center of our faith, center of our exegesis, center of our thinking about God and inspiration, and the whole thing?
0: Mm-hmm. I think
2: mm-hmm. it everything.
0: Yeah, and I, I think it's what's super helpful about that is um, there are other uh, you know uh, scholars and, and authors out there um, that wrestle with uh, some of these uh, violent portraits in Scripture. For example, uh, Pete Enns is one of the first people I read – tackling this issue uh in his book the bible tells me so and he kind of basically says um for a variety of reasons when we see things like canaanite genocide they just didn't happen and for some people his arguments aren't very um compelling or they just think oh he's just you know into like overly historical criticism or whatever um right but what i like about your model is that it's not it's it's not doing that it's it's um it's it's similar, but it's different at the same time because it's Jesus-centered and it's cross-centered. And so when we see sure. ugly portraits in Scripture, for example, Canaanite genocide. Now, correct me if I'm like misappropriating your, your ideas, but we could look at the Canaanite genocide and say that is revealing the ugliness of humanity, right. not the ugliness of God.
2: And the ugliness of how humans have always thought about God.
0: Yeah, okay.
2: Because uh, what you have there is pretty much uh, you know, the ancient Israelites were pretty much inheriting lock, stock, and barrel, an ancient and ancient conception of what deity is.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
2: and God is a warrior deity. And they even take, you know, and this is what I get at in Crucifixion of the Warrior God and in Cross Vision, they'll even take songs that are sung to these violent warrior deities, and take these songs and switch out their deity's name and switch in Yahweh, and, and some of our psalms do that, you know, it's like, Yahweh not Baal is the one who comes down from Mount you know from the mountain on high and he rides on clouds and throws thunderbolts and there's smoke blowing out of his no- nostrils and those are just standard ancient Eastern uh, in- images um and so I, I, I like I totally agree with Peter Enns in his critique uh, Eric Siebert another uh, yeah who I, I think they're historical critical Um mm-hmm. Uh, assessment of state of conquest narrative is accurate. I don't think it's solidly written in history, and the vast majority of scholars agree with that. But see, to me, it doesn't matter at all, because Jesus endorses the text as being inspired. Um, it's all God's Word, and and the whole New Testament and the whole of church history supports that. Uh, and so, I, I haven't solved the problem. I don't think Peter solved the problem by saying it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I still have to... Also with the portrait of God that's there in the, the, the scripture. So what I'm trying to give really is a theology that makes sense out of the historical critical assessment of these violent portraits of God. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and the the I've been a little disappointed that I haven't had more folks from the from the progressive side embrace this because um, <laughs> I I wrote it in part to say look you, you can. You don't have to abandon the plenary inspiration of the Bible in order to say what you want to say about these these important issues that you're struggling with. Um, and there's reasons why you shouldn't want to reject the inspiration of the Bible. Uh, it, if you look at it through the lens of the cross, it all bears witness to the cross. And some have embraced that, um, but but I, I, a lot of, I've got a lot of pushback from, from folks on the kind of left of me. I've had more pushback from folks who are left of me than I've had from right wing questions. <laughs> That's interesting. It's, uh, I was expecting more blowback from the right. And I think it's probably because uh, the right has isn't taking it serious yet. They'll take it serious if people start to actually you know, buy this, get into this. Um, mm-hmm. I think they learned from John Piper that if you too quickly make a contra- controversy over a book, you'll just sell more copies of the book. They learned that with Rob Bell. <laughs> And farewell, yeah. Rob Bell was the best, uh, you know, money-making slogan anyone ever came up with. When John Piper said farewell, Rob Bell, and Rob boom. said,
0: "Thank you very much." <laughs> oh, I,
2: I, I wish he'd say farewell, Greg Boyd. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> as far as perfection is outside the bounds, boom. But uh, yeah, so some have thought that I'm—I take Scripture too seriously. I'm too worried about you know finding a meaning behind every passage. And I, I all I can say in response to that is this is the attitude I see in Jesus, and it's the attitude I see throughout the early church, in fact, throughout church history. And so I think I'm in pretty good standing if I treat the Bible that seriously.
1: Well, yeah, that was a question that Josh and I were kind of talking about this week and the last couple of weeks, and then even this in, this afternoon before getting on with you is, you know, the question I asked is just as I've read through this book, like, why why would this or why is this controversial <laughs> like i guess i don't i guess as i read through it and i and josh and i discuss things and we're kind of making sure we're all in agreement on like what you're trying to say in the book you know like what about this is supposed to be controversial because it doesn't seem like it is well, but like josh had an experience earlier this week on social media or maybe last week where he posted a quote from the book and just got totally lambasted from some <laughs> friends of ours that are that that tend to fall more on the conservative <laughs> side yeah um, you know, and and I and I get, and I'm just kind of, and just as I'm reading through the things that they're posting on this post, I'm kind of like, no, like you actually don't know anything about what you're saying because what you yes, know, you're, what you're, say, yeah. you're, you're just you're you're missing the point. And I guess that like for me, that's my question is just, you know, why why would the idea that there could potentially be things written in a book that was written by you know many different authors, people who have translated and retranslated and all these different things, why why is it controversial for us to say this could be there could be errors in the my in in the minutiae of this book I, I guess i'd be curious to hear what your thought on that well, is
2: you know i i agree with you but the what gives it i think such passion among evangelicals okay mm-hmm. is that um they Part of the conservative Christianity that evolved all the 19th century, uh, and this is kind of coming on the wings of the Enlightenment and you know the uh, modernity uh, is was a an epistemological insecurity that that uh, if people used to think they knew what they believed and they knew why they believed it and and it wasn't challenged very much. Western culture went on for 1,500 years that way. Then the scientific revolution comes, Enlightenment comes, and 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 people begin to worry about like uh, what's the foundation of what we believe? Well, mm-hmm. the answer that the Bible that, that that Protestants gave was the Bible. The Bible is the foundation for for why we believe in what we believe. It's mm-hmm. yeah. You know, and, and so the Bible played the role of a foundation of a foundation in a modernist epistemology where you build things up from a solid foundation, right? So it's like building blocks. Okay, I know this to be true. That I know this to be true. Therefore, I can know this to be true. So you build up your knowledge. Well, um i don't think the bible can handle that i don't think the bible is meant to be that kind of a foundation uh there is a need for an epistemological foundation i'm not one of these anti-foundationalists that you have today uh, who who think that you just believe what you believe and you can't ever really give reasons for it. it's kind of fightyism you know it's like oh this is just how it occurs to me and and we <laughs> just can't discuss among each other reasons for why we believe what we believe i just re- refuse if that's the case then it's just we might as well just all be Calvinists or something, because it's just a matter of luck But you're going to end up believing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think we have reasons for—it's for true. It just be up yes. up. It, it's it's just—here's yeah. what I feel. So, but the foundation, I think, is not the Bible. The, 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 the epistemic foundation for why I believe what I believe is largely history. I've got good historical reasons for believing Jesus. Uh, doing a historical critical assessment of the Gospels, whatever. I've got also philosophical arguments, existential arguments— uh, you know, I cover some of these in a book called Jesus Legend, uh, where uh, I look at all the historical reasons for believing in this. Hmm. Um, th- there's other reasons as well. But that's uh, my reasons for believing in Jesus have nothing to do with the Bible as the inspired Word of God. They have to do with the Gospels as and, and with Paul's letters, just treated as historical documents. But if I assess those things on the same kind of historical critical criteria that I would assess any other ancient document— I argue that that we are given very good reasons for believing that uh, mm-hmm. the Jesus of history was was very close to the is reflected in the Jesus of the Gospels, mm-hmm. and that is history.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, so, no, it's what's so interesting. But
2: so so with that epistemological foundation, then we do need an epistemic foundation. But if you've got it in the historical Jesus, you don't need now to be placing any weight on that. Uh, and scripture. So I, I, I believe scripture because Jesus endorses it and it's part of the church tradition. But I don't believe it because I need it to be the foundation of my faith.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Uh, Jesus is the foundation of my faith and I can give you the reasons why I believe in him. Does that make sense? Straight up. Yeah.
1: Well, and you know, it's interesting to me you, because you see the general evangelical population. They tend to put their stock in something as perfect for a really long time until it's not anymore. Uh, and then they just don't they don't know what to do. And then you look at guys like Bill Hybels, uh, who, you know, they put so much stock in someone like that. And then you find out that he's not perfect, like everyone thought he was. And like the pedestal they put him on. And then all of a sudden they don't know what to do. And it's it's like incredibly damaging to that. And I, I think a lot of that probably is the same thing with scripture is that, you know, many of them have faith because their pastor told them to or uh, because their parents told them sure, to sure, or yeah. the youth pastor yeah. told them to. Um, but they don't necessarily have a faith that they've personally investigated and gone after and really made right, their right, own. Right, right, right. Uh, that's, that's honestly, that's been the, the biggest challenge, I think, is being a dad of four kids, is how do I encourage my kids to make the their, their faith their own, not my faith? Because mine is based on experience and different things yep. that have happened to me over a period of time, but they don't necessarily have that. Mm-hmm. And so it, they need to... And- it, it's, there's there's so much of that, that I see You're pushing a button here, dude. I'm telling you, <laughs> no, listen.
2: That is so good because see here, we are facing a, we're a crisis of faith. All right, there's a paradigm That's shift going right. on under noses. We're not aware of it, and as a result, we're losing people by the droves. Um, and and so here's the thing: is like, so what's happened is this, the big bad scary world with all of its questions and all of its problems, the historical critical stuff, and all the challenges of faith has come up around us. And so a lot of the Christians kind of like, okay, it's time to hunker down. And so we create a little enclave of a sort of subculture of where we're protected from all the false ideas, the fake news of the world, right? All the challenges. Mm -hmm. And we pretend like it's not there. La, 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 la. We got Jesus. What else do we need? But then we raise our kids that way. And unfortunately, while we might be able to bury our heads in the sand and pretend like the real world isn't there, our kids can't. And so here's the thing is that how do you get the kids to own the faith? That's the number one challenge of any parent who's a Christian. I'm fortunate because I converted into this thing, and, and and so I didn't come with all that crappy baggage. I mean, I yeah, had somehow yeah. was raised Catholic, but none of, none of it fortunately stuck with me. But but the, see, like, the only way that you kids can ever come to own their faith is for them to own their faith. And the only way for them to own their faith is for them to be challenged by it. It's, yeah, it's yeah. no different than if your kids are going to live in this world they got to develop, and you have to give them an immune system, and the only way to get an immune system is to make the immune system work. It's got to face some bugs to get activated, to start fighting off stuff. Well, it's only when the faith has to fend for itself that it becomes real to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A, a faith that is, of course, that's just part of the cereal that you grow up with, uh, well, that's not the Christian faith. There's no way, there's no way that a, a gospel based on a God who became a human and died on a cross could ever become ho-hum, of course, weedy we cereal, just kind of what you do. No, it's either the craziest thing anyone's ever come up with or it's divine revelation. And, and and if it's divine revelation, well then it's deserving of, of our everything. So yeah, it's uh, I, I, you've got to let your kids get out there in the world and then have a confidence that the questions that they ask you, there's answers to.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, and that's the problem is that most adult Christians are intellectually insecure, and so they raise intellectually insecure kids who then the first time they meet some challenges, some smart non-Christians, what you really think that all non Christians are going to hell? What kind of God is that? Boom, they lose their faith. It's just <laughs> unnecessary. So yeah, let your kids be exposed to everything that you're afraid of.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's so good. And I mean, I uh, I didn't let you know this beforehand, Greg, but so I'm a uh... in,
2: in, you know age-appropriate ways, of course. You know, sure. I'm yeah. Like...
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> if you're three-year-old. Okay, here's the Torah, Upanishads, in the Bible. You
0: decide. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but, but all of those things uh, ring so true for me because – so I'm a full-time high school and young adult pastor. Uh, um, and I didn't grow up in such a way that I was afforded the opportunity to think for myself, um, uh, not to any fault of my parents. My parents were never uh, like super strict or, or um, anything like that. Um, but it just wasn't – it was just something we did. Like Christianity was, oh, it's just that. Sure, yeah, and yeah, so yeah, yeah. it got wrecked for me easily in college at a christian college believe it or not <laughs> well,
2: No, sure yeah the christian college is still you know unless they're bible schools they'll still teach you about the real world And in the real world there's a lot of objections to the christian faith yeah and any christian college that didn't expose you to that wouldn't be doing his job absolutely so you prepared for even that much
0: yeah and it was great so i went to messiah college and they um they introduced like yeah they introduced me to a lot of the uh, some more Anabaptist leaning stuff, and that's where I really got hooked on this idea of of Jesus at the center of everything and All right. um, which was great it, it was awesome and that's actually that's where I met Bruxy, because he adjunct a few times and would come and do travel mm-hmm. services or whatever uh but one thing that is kind of outside of the bounds of your book, but I think it's a question that um some of our listeners might be wondering, um especially when it comes to the inspiration model because you talked a lot about um it's very relational so does one have to uh presuppose like an open and relational view of god in order for this model to work good question
2: um i wouldn't say one has to open it has to embrace an open model if i open you mean that the idea that the future is partly open and mm-hmm. possibilities are real and that god knows it as such that's often called the open view of God
0: sure
2: uh, open theism yeah one wouldn't have to believe, embrace that there's nothing in the book that is overtly that um, the whole thing though is written from an armenian perspective okay. uh, that is uh I don't think this would work at all in fact I'm I have no idea here's how I have to be careful because I can say there's no way that a person could say this, but in fact, people say this kind of stuff all the time. I just don't get how they can say it. So (laughs) I don't know how a Calvinist could embrace this book because the whole thing is dialogical. Uh, There's pushback on God. Uh, You know, God doesn't always get in his way. God uh, influences as much as possible, but then embraces us as we are precisely because God will not coerce us into being sinless or having true thoughts about him. Mm -hmm. So God Mm -hmm. has to accommodate and, and embrace us as we are, and breathe through his, the authors as they are, because he will not resort to coercion to perfect them. But if you're a Calvinist, God's already coercing everything. So I don't know what it would possibly mean to say that God has to accept or God has to embrace or God you know, yields to. If God's the cause of all that is, that's is why I don't understand. I, I appreciate when John Piper says, let's stop talking about God allows evil. God doesn't allow evil. He ordains it. Well, thank <laughs> you. I appreciate that. Allowing is simply a nice way of saying causes when causes would be offensive. Okay, so I, I don't think a Calvinist could embrace this. I don't know why they would uh, or how they could. Um, so it presupposes that human beings ha- have it presupposes synergism, that there's more than one will that operates in the universe. Um, but it doesn't presuppose. I, I think the open view of the future is an implication of the world being created in a synergistic way where there are other agents that God has to interact with who have their own free will. Um, you open is the implication of that, but it's not itself a prerequisite to to uh, agreeing with this book,
0: okay, awesome yeah, that it it works i I mean I guess just being relational i'm it, just a super relational person, so the whole relational uh, understanding with uh god is is one that really resonates with me and that I like. um and so I think that's another strength uh brought about in the book. and also too, it's like, um I feel like it's a shame that. Some of the pushback you're getting because what I kind of see happening from an outside perspective is I almost see like the uh, The attempt of like some bridge building between some of the more conservative and then this more progressive camps like wait a minute guys Stop fighting with each other for a second. What if it looks like this? I feel like you extend olive branches both ways if that makes sense and like, mm-hmm. it, it seems like a really helpful bridge that can be endorsed. And I mean, we're talking to you about it. So obviously I'm a fan of it, <laughs> but, um, mm-hmm. I don't know. Does it, does that make sense? Do you see it that oh, way? Or? Foreign fans, believe me.
2: Uh, <laughs> there are people who talk about foreign fans. No, I, 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 totally get what you're coming from. I see, I, I, in principle, this is something that any evangelical who, um, who is convinced that God is nonviolent. And, and that's the thing. That, that's the other thing. It's like, who would embrace this book? But well, see, here's the thing. You, you only will feel the need for this book to the degree that you're convinced that the God who's revealed in Jesus Christ crucified conflicts with the God who commanded genocide in the Old Testament.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm.
2: if you don't think there's a conflict there, then why would you ever want this book? I mean, it's like, uh, no, if you're... If, if you're happy with that, then I, I don't know how to I, what to do other than ask the question, like, what Jesus are you believing in? Is it the one who said, you know, love love your enemies and bless those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven? Love like the rain shines, not like the sun falls. Or is it some other Jesus? But to the degree that one sees the conflict here, you're open to a different way of assessing this. And I'm trying to offer folks this way of assessing it. Here's what's interesting, Joshua, is that in the church tradition, um, theologians and anybody who cared to read the Bible, but it was usually just theologians, uh, they were free to reinterpret, massively reinterpret, major swaths of of Scripture. Like, for example, if God is act as purist, then there's no potentiality in God, so God has no potential to to ever change. God is timeless. Um, And so whatever God does, God does eternally. There's no sequence in God. Well, when you read the Bible— you know what, every portrait of God has God in sequence with us. We <laughs> act and God responds. Then we act, and God responds. And yet in the church tradition, they're okay saying all of those depictions, every one of those depictions that has God moving in time with us, responding to us, being affected by us, they are all penultimate. They all reflect our perspective. They they don't describe God as God actually is, but the way that we experience God or something along those lines. Um but when it came to the violent portraits of God, all of a sudden those those are literal.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, and, and and it's important that what you can draw you can draw allegorical lessons out of them, but affirming the historicity, the actuality of these violent episodes became absolutely crucial. Now, why? If God changing His mind, it, it does, it, that doesn't have to be crucial. Or God God, God being surprised by how some all that can be reinterpreted, but the violence of God can't be reinterpreted. Well, why? Well, the answer is that that violence after the 5th century became very important to us. We needed it. Because if our God doesn't act violently, then what will justify us acting violently? And we want to act violently. We want to kill our enemies. We don't want to love those suckers. We want to bomb the hell out of them. So, wait, But we also want to be Christian, right? So we don't want to deny that. So how do we do both? well, we have to do some you know, gymnastics here and in such a ways and hither and thithers, but we'll find a way. Um, mm-hmm. Let's see, if, if you understand that nonviolence is at the center of what Jesus was about and the center of his revelation of God, well, then, you're, then you know something else must be going on. So you have a different way of... I'm trying to offer folks here, look, at this way of reading the Bible, uh, it's a way that solves some longstanding problems that need to be solved, and you don't have to depart from the church tradition uh, to do it, yeah, from the plenary inspiration of the Bible, uh, to do it. Um, and, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm hoping that, both from evangelicals on the right and on the left, there'd be something here that they'd be fine worth looking into. Mm-hmm. We'll have to see what happens.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um so I, I have one more question I wanted to ask you, and then, Marty, I didn't know if you have any... I got any. time for about one
2: more. We're running down like last two or three minutes.
0: Yeah, so, okay, so here, the question I wanted to ask actually came from one of my students. Uh, they're a college student, um, wicked smart, and they've been on their own theological journey, and they actually, they read your book, Inspired in Perfection, and the thing that tripped them out was when you pointed out an error in something that Jesus himself said. Yeah, and he so he's like, wait a minute. Like, I understand other stuff getting wrong. Jesus is the ultimate revelation, but now Jesus is wrong. Like, what now? What? So, can yeah, you kind of yeah. like talk about that tension just a little bit? Sure. Uh,
2: so, it happens a couple places, but I gave one example of this is in Mark chapter two, I guess it is, uh, where uh, uh, the Pharisees are criticizing Jesus for healing a guy on the Sabbath, and Jesus points to this episode where David and his bros. Ate some show bread that was dedicated bread in the temple, which was forbidden to eat on the Sabbath, and because they were hungry, and um, uh, they had extenuating circumstances. So Jesus it says, you know, so, so Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Um, but then, in the process of talking about that, he, he refers to uh, David when, when Abiathar was high priest. Well, actually, it was Ambimalek, Abiathar's fa- uh, father. So there's now it could be that Mark made the mistake. Uh, in recording Jesus. It could be that Jesus made the mistake. Uh, I don't know. But if Jesus was fully human, it, be, making a mistake isn't a sin. A sin requires intentionality. And, and, and so, there shouldn't be causing a Christological crisis that Jesus uh, could make a human mistake. Um, it, it, I, I think while he was human, he had a fully human mind. That's why he asked questions. No one knows the hour but the Father who touched me. You know, he, he asked, I, those are genuine things. He wasn't God, you know, engaging in a charade of being a human. He was a real human made in all respects like we are. So the fact that he got a, a quote of scripture wrong, you got to remember, you know, these folks, they didn't have all the memory tools that we have, all the parsing, the verbs, and all that stuff. They, most of them, you didn't know in your own Bible, okay? So, so you had to, everything was from memory. And the fact that 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 he got that one one thing wrong, I, I think, it just shows that he's, he's a human being. Or it could have been Mark. But the point is that does that does his being wrong at all taint his revelation of God? Hmm. And I I just find saying, no, it doesn't taint it at all. In fact, it highlights it because it reveals that God really did become a full human being. Hmm. So if Jesus makes mistakes, that also enhances his divine authority. Uh, because it uh, shows that God, God it became a real human being, um, and uh, yeah. So, it has the same function that the, the errors of, of, of scripture have. So, though, now some someone, if I say, well, what about when Jesus says, "All scripture cannot be broken. Scripture cannot be broken." John ten, or not a, not one jot or tittle will pass from the law. Uh, what do I do with scriptures like that? And I'll just. Say, you gotta read the book I I, the last <laughs> chapter I put it with those things Yeah, I gotta leave something dangling otherwise it's perfect yeah
1: yeah it's that's, perfect and everybody leave, should leave all the low-hanging fruit for everyone to get yeah, that's
2: banged. it that's <laughs> it they'll just have to buy the book and find out it's how does it perfect.
0: it's perfect yeah so what we'll do is we'll go ahead and, and we'll link that and we'll also uh, link uh, the other books of yours that we had referenced during the show so um, our listeners can find those. And then also, is yeah. where, where else would you like people uh, to go to, Greg, to, to stay connected with you find your work? Hey, if
2: you want to, um, you can follow me on Twitter, uh, just uh, Greg uh, underscore Boyd. Um, you can follow me there. You can um, my my website, renew.org with a K R E K N E W. I have a ton of resources there. I answer all sorts of questions. I got a library on books I recommend. And, yeah, you can check it out. Also, Woodland Hills Church, if you want to check out my sermons, we've got all the archives going back to 1992. Every sermon I've ever preached, gosh, I've done a lot of sermons. Things yeah. like eleven 1, hundred now, something
0: like that. That's crazy. There are a lot of really good ones too. I've, I've. Once in a while, they're okay. Yeah. <laughs> Most of them suck, but once in a while, I get. Annoying. Sweet, right on. Well, Greg, thank you again so much uh, for chatting right. with us today. Uh, thank you for for all the work that you're putting all right, out pleasure. there. My right, pleasure. pleasure. Um, hey,
2: keep thinking, you guys, and keep helping others think.
0: All right, man. Thank you so much.
2: God bless. Take God care. God bless. And for all our bye.
0: listeners, go Caps. Go Blackhawks!
2: I don't know who those are.